Welcome to Partisan Gardens. We can't wait any longer. For a tech breakthrough, climate apocalypse, the revolution, or a reform of the USDA loan system. On Partisan Gardens, we know climate catastrophe is here, and it's our food system's dead end. Here we see sustainable fine dining and ecological destruction, hunger and obesity, extreme wealth and immense poverty. We must be frank about reality to reckon with our options. We must choose sides and become partisans of a new way to live and grow food. This alternative path is already under construction. Through the experiments and struggles of food service and agricultural workers, we are figuring out how to create food systems that will nourish a livable world for us all. Partisan Gardens will feature stories from kitchen staff, new small farmers, undocumented slaughterhouse organizers, agroecology researchers, black farming cooperatives, urban gardeners, indigenous land stewards, permaculturists, and countless others exploring this field of experimentation. Let those of us who refuse to wait proceed together. The current food system has failed. And we are on the side of nourishment and care. We spoke earlier today to Suzanne Wengla, a professor at Notre Dame who researches post-Soviet political and economic transformation in Russia. Her second book is Black Earth, White Bread, a techno-political history of Russian agriculture and food. We were eager to hear her perspective on the history of agriculture in Russia and Ukraine and the current war's ripple effects on food systems around the world. Hi, thanks for the invitation. I am Suzanne Wenglet. I'm associate professor at the University of Notre Dame. I've been there since 2015. Before that, I was at the University of Chicago a few years. And before that, I was at Berkeley for my PhD. My main research interests are Russian politics and political economy. So I, I basically study the creation of markets in Russia since the fall of the Soviet Union, since the collapse of the planned economy. So a lot of people still think of markets in the way that Adam Smith wanted us to think about them as sort of, you know, they just happen naturally and the invisible hand makes them happen. But the Russian experience really drives home that institutions are really, really uh, important. Uh, and so I'm interested in the, in the politics of how these institutions are created. And my first book was about uh, electricity markets. And my second book is about agriculture. Both, of course, provide some really basic goods for life. And so in terms of this second book, uh, Black Earth, White Bread, it attempts to understand uh, and extend the conversation of agricultural policy in the Russian Empire beyond a simple story of technological progress. What are some basic things people should understand about this traditional narrative and the more complex story you're trying to tell? You know, books are big and there's lots of things that fit into it, but there's definitely a few basic things that I that that I wanted to foreground. Um, and so the first uh, basic thing is actually sort of in the structure of the book. And, and that's I wanted to highlight uh, the connection between uh, producing food and then consumption and politics and the environmental context. So there's actually four big uh, chapters in the book about production, consumption, politics and the environmental context. And, you know, the, all of these things are are very closely intertwined and the, and the connections are really interesting to me. Well, you know, this 
always seems like a pretty basic point, and I'm actually uh, guessing there's not a lot of pushback from listeners. And of course, any anyone who gardens knows that whatever you plant is what you harvest if, if you're lucky. But academic research has actually tended to sort of silo these aspects of agriculture, right? Agricultural economists are really interested in production, efficiency, farm structure, and so on. And then anthropologists worry about uh, consumption and examine consumption. And and then political scientists are interested in in policies and farm subsidies and so on. And really, there there isn't enough research, I think, in in exploring these, these connections. So that's just one basic point. A second basic point is that technology is really central to all these aspects of uh, food and agriculture. Technology has a, a sort of always been important, I argue, but, but agriculture, uh, as, as of course many people know, has become increasingly technology intensive. And there's really sort of really sophisticated, uh, technologically advanced farming methods that uh, are used uh, in Russia as else, elsewhere in the world. Uh, and this is really a point that came uh, became clear to me when I talked to uh, farmers in Russia and and also agricultural uh, corporations because they like to talk about the technology, right? They sort of tell me about this new uh, equipment and these new uh, ways of producing food and so on. So the point is basically we need to pay attention to technology and how it shapes uh, consumption. We also need to pay attention to which technologies are supported by governments because that's really important for how food is produced, what food is produced, and then also really important for the environmental consequences of farming. And that's true for Russia, but it's also really true for for farming everywhere. And I'll say that I just really appreciated your interdisciplinary approach. And then just the kind of really strong historical thinking through that, thinking, I mean, these are just really big political and historical questions in terms of how government policy modulates uh, the application of technologies and agricultures. I actually just realized that I forgot my third basic point that I had in my mind, which which goes to that basically, you know, history matters. But I think something to remember, because uh, we now are very much, you know, in the presence with Russia's war, you know, what is what is Putin thinking? What kind of policy has he put in place and so on? And all of this matters, of course, critically, but it's also really important to uh, uh, remember that whatever Putin has done and can do follows from what, what Khrushchev did and and follows in even more important ways from what Stalin did and what Lenin did. And so I think that's one of the things why the book ended up being a history of agriculture. You know, one of the things I I say is that what Russian agriculture during the 20th century had in common, that it it was always really, it's really influenced by these very sort of top-down modernization projects, right? But they each played out differently and that each subsequent one sort of shaped the conditions for the, for the latter. So just in very briefly is that Lenin nationalized land uh, in 1917. This created a bunch of problems for Stalin. One of the problems, this main problem was called the grain question, uh, which was basically Stalin needed uh, peasants to grow more grain and more industrial grain to feed the Red Army and the industrial workforce. And the peasants really uh, had uh, different priorities. Uh, and so this ended up uh, in collectivization, which was Stalin's um, very uh, brutal and, and really deadly campaign to collectivize uh, farmers in, in the 1930s. Uh, it did, however, remove peasants' control from the land, right? And so the farms were, were state-owned, 
And, and this, uh, in many ways, I'm skipping over many uh, decades here, created the conditions for privatization as it happened under Yeltsin. And then uh, uh, one of the main things that happened in the Putin period is that uh, land, formerly state-owned, former collective land, was transferred to what we know as agro holdings. Those are large vertically integrated agricultural corporations uh, that now control very large swaths of, of Russian farmland. So this wouldn't have been possible if the farmers uh, of the imperial era uh, still had control of the land, uh, which they received uh, after uh, Stolypin's reform in the imperial era. So, so that's sort of, those are some, some really broad uh, uh, connections uh, about who, who, can who can farm land, who owns land, who has um, authority to make decisions that uh, follow, follow uh, through the course of the 20th century. And so at the end of this sort of course of transformation, can you summarize what Russia's relationship, what the relationship is between Russian agriculture and the rest of the world in terms of food systems? Yeah, that's also, you know, a really fascinating part about Russian agriculture, because, you know, you may know that late imperial Russia was the breadbasket for uh, Europe, right? So uh, the Britain was industrializing and later on Germany and other countries in Western Europe. And, and Russia basically supplied the grain for factory workers, right? And, and this, this is specifically also uh, Ukrainian farmers because a lot of the grain that was grown in Imperial uh, in the Russian empire came from uh, Ukraine and the North Caucasus. And um, so Russia was exporting a lot of grain. Um, for a number of reasons, the Bolshevik government wasn't able to continue this kind of export of grain. And that's a long story, but it has to do with collectivization and the fact that uh, collective farms actually produce less grain. And so in the 30s, 40s and 50s, there was Russia uh, or the Soviet Union, I should say, uh, was relatively isolated. There was rel relatively little uh, trade ties. There's some exceptions, Russia, the Soviet Union had trade ties with other communist countries. Uh, another important uh, exception is that there was a, uh, quite a bit of knowledge exchange and technology uh, imports. But, but on the whole, uh, the Soviet Union didn't import or export a whole lot of grain until the early, early 70s. And, and many listeners will know about the, uh, the change that happened in the, in the 70s when uh, the Soviet Union started importing uh, American grain. It's called the Great Grain Deal. And, you know, it was uh, happened uh, during the Brezhnev administration that basically wanted to um, make sure people had meat to eat, right? That was sort of the definition of prosperity and Soviet uh, socialism was, was sort of the good life, right? And, and meat was part of that. Uh, but to raise animals, that are needed to produce, to bring, bring sausages to people's plate required a lot of feed. And, and so uh, the, the Soviet Union never quite produced enough feed. So, so uh, starting in the seventies, uh, the Soviet Union imported an increasing amount of, of grain, first from the US and later from, from other countries. The nineties are a further shift uh, when the Soviet planned economy collapsed Russia and other former Soviet countries actually started importing all kinds of foods from the, from the West. This, this was actually one of the concerns of the Putin government that Russia would be import dependent and dependent on foreign foods. 
So in the 2000s, the Putin government started a sort of reversal where it tried to reduce import dependence and tried to help domestic farmers. Uh, and, and that did start to change in the 2000s for, for a number of reasons. And the, make, the big change uh, in the 2000s was that Russia became an importer of technology and also an importer of uh, capital that went to rural modernization. And so today, Russia is actually uh, exports a lot of grain. It's the largest wheat uh, exporter uh, in the world and exports to over 100 countries. Um, and in, in many ways that has been made possible by sort of a, a technological renaissance as, as Russian interlocutors call it. So I wanna get into the connection between the emergence of Russia as an agricultural exporter and the current conflict and war in Ukraine. But before doing that, if it's okay for me to add a question, uh, just what you were saying about the, uh, the sort of vision of a good life, mm-hmm. 1970s that the Brezhnev government wanted to achieve through this great grain deal really raises for me, you know, the concept that is central to your book, which is technopolitics. And so thinking about the relationship between, you know, very particular ideas of the good life and, you know, it's the relationship between that sort of sense of prosperity and the success or failure of governments and the ability to meet that idea of a good life through, you know, technological applications and trade deals. Uh, I mean, that seems to be, you know, to my mind, close to the core of your book. And I was just wondering if you could just do a little bit uh, to lay out sort of what you mean by technopolitics and uh, why it's useful for thinking about Russian agricultural systems and Russian governance. Uh, yeah, thanks for this question. That That is right. Technopolitics is sort of a, a critical or a core concept. And you really, uh, you know, did a good job summarizing it. And, you know, it's it's this sort of idea that sort of pretty straightforward technology and politics. Those are the two elements of technopolitics. Uh, politics are, are quite central. And interestingly to me, I realized that they actually speak to sort of the two of the big areas uh, of the sort of food system that I want to talk to because technology is really sort of, you know, a priori and primarily about production, right? So, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of concern uh, with yields and, you know, seeds and inputs and and sort of, you know, how exactly can we produce the, the best food, right? And so the technological concerns for Stalin were, were the tractor, right? Because Russian agriculture in the sort of 20s depended on horses. But, you know, now these questions are, are still very relevant, but it's about genetic engineering and CRISPR-Cas9 technologies, but it's still kind of the same, uh, the same sort of question, like how can technologies be used to produce certain kinds of foods and certain yields and certain types of, uh, certain levels of, of out- output? And those, of course, uh, you know, when you look at them, were, were central concerns of Soviet governments, right? They're actually also central concerns of, of Western democratic governments, but it sort of is very, very clear and explicit in, in the Soviet Union uh, that food is central. And the, you know, of course, the, the history of the Soviet Union is that the Soviet government actually failed uh, in many years, right? There were famines uh, in the 20s, there were famines in the 30s, there were famines in 46, 47. So food really isn't something that Soviet governments could uh, take for granted. You know, it's also remains a political question because subsequent governments or one government after the other is sort of dissatisfied with with how previous governments uh, 
dealt with with what is in Russia known the food problem or the grain problem. Uh, and so, you know, Stalin's methods were incredibly brutal, but they actually didn't uh, achieve the kind of effects uh, that he set out for himself, right? They did collectivize agriculture and did in some way modernize agriculture, uh, but but it didn't sort of lead to sort of the, the good life that, you know, many sort of had promised. And so, for example, there's, there's cookbooks uh, in the Stalin era that sort of show this panoply of recipes and have images and use all kinds of ingredients, but of course these ingredients weren't uh, available, right? So, so Khrushchev and Brezhnev each try in different ways to address this sort of political problem, and they rely on different technologies. And so, one of the things that I'm trying to show in the book is that you know, really, these sort of techno-political problems and the food problems are actually still quite central for the for the Putin government, right? So, so Putin had a a food plan just like uh, Khrushchev had a food plan, right? And it looked different uh, because this is the 21st century uh, with a highly globalized market economy where all kinds of new capital flows and technologies are available. But in in essence, it's the same concerns and and it's the same sort of fetishization of large-scale capital investments and technologies and large actors that are then sort of enlisted to solve this problem. And so in terms of the long durée of the grain problem or the food problem in Russia and now Russia's current status as an exporter, Mm -hmm. could you walk us through uh, the sort of relationship between its current status as a grain exporter and the sort of political landscape that's led to this war? Yeah, so that's, you know, a a big, I think, also open question. So let me start maybe about 20 years ago. Uh, So Putin comes to power and really sees that Russian farms are are devastated. So the 90s were devastating for Russian farms, uh, partly because Yeltsin subscribed to the sort of neoliberal agenda at the time that let's just liberalize, right? Let's just privatize farms, uh, open markets, and then sort of the the strong and efficient farms will survive and the other ones should just go bankrupt. But what of course happened is that all farms were went bankrupt because this is at the time where actually it's incredibly hard to be a small farm everywhere, even in Western Europe and the US uh, where there is still quite a bit of state support. So Russian farms had a, a really a kind of a, a million different problems, but some of the central problems is that didn't have uh, access to capital. They couldn't actually uh, upgrade their technology. They couldn't even buy imports. They also just uh, had to compete with sort of the hyper-efficient Western agricultural producers. And so so the 90s were terrible for Russian farms, for post-Soviet farms across Eurasia. And so Putin comes to power and sort of sees that, and, and he sort of has a, a number of policy initiatives that try to strengthen uh, domestic farms. And and initially, they're mostly rhetorical because the government doesn't have all that much money, but oil prices go up in the early 2000s. So so these programs actually become pretty important and actually quite helpful. And they are, you know, sort of surprisingly targeted and surprisingly effective. And, And a lot of agricultural producers actually sort of acknowledge that, you know, we couldn't have grown the way we did if it hadn't been for uh, you know, these uh, subsidized loans and these tax breaks and all these other benefits. And so the book talks a lot about the sort of the federal level subsidies. I've also talked to Russian colleagues who always emphasize that in certain regions, there were regional benefits and subsidies that were actually supplemented these federal programs. So overall, these were quite generous programs. They're quite helpful. And, you know, two important things to remember 
is that Putin's political priorities were, were really quite different from sort of the political priorities that we are used to from Western Europe and the US, right? And I think that the war actually highlights some aspects of these political priorities that, you know, we were aware of, but they seem now more important, right? So two, I always talk about them, these policies, they're actually known as the food security agenda or also the food sovereignty agenda. Uh, food sovereignty in the Russian context is a little bit different from food sovereignty elsewhere in that it emphasizes sovereignty of the Russian state as a whole. Um, as opposed to sort of individual level food sovereignty. So, so the food sovereignty agenda has an internal and a, an external uh, aspect. The domestic aspect is about preventing food price inflation. So food price inflation had been a huge problem for Yeltsin. Uh, you know, Soviet citizens were not used to uh, prices increasing, right? Because the Soviet Union very explicitly and, and deliberately kept food prices low. Uh, with Yeltsin's liberal reforms that ended, right? And and people were sort of shocked and puzzled and and really actually uh, very negatively affected uh, by the fact that food prices just, you know, seemed to triple very quickly. So I don't know the stats, but, you know, basic food staples became really expensive and and, and food insecurity and poverty were, were, were the result. So the domestic aspect of Putin's food sovereignty agenda is to... to produce more domestic grain that in sort of case of emergency, who could, you know, make sure that the grain stayed in Russia and, and feed Russian people. And then the international angle of the food sovereignty agenda was, was just to not depend on foreign food in, imports uh, as much as, as was the case in the 90s. And that sort of external aspect sort of evolved over time. It was uh, first pursued uh, through what were called self-sufficiency targets for a number of staples. So dairy, meat, grain, uh, industrial crops, such as sugar beet, oil seeds, and so on. But once these sort of self-sufficiency targets were reached uh, and the Putin government was actually quite successful in, in reaching those, the, the sort of attention shifted to agricultural uh, inputs. And, and you know that is sort of the context uh, where, this is sort of where we're at now because I get a lot of questions about to what extent is Russian agriculture dependent on, on the West, right? And I think that, you know, question is essentially should be understood and translated as to what extent is Russia still dependent on, on technology imports uh, from other countries? Um, and, you know, the, the answer is, you know, less so than it used to be probably still a little bit, uh, but they can probably get by uh, for, for quite a while. Uh, and, and an important element of that uh, is actually also uh, what is known as the food ban, which are sanctions that Russia imposed on the West after 2014 in response to uh, Western sanctions after the annexation of Crimea. So I know I'm, uh, I'm, I'm adding a lot of historical details here, but, but basically, uh, Hugh, I'm trying to answer your question is, you know, what is, is Russia still, how, how much is Russian agriculture still dependent on, on imports? Um, and, you know, time will, time will tell, right? The next couple of years will tell, but it's definitely uh, helped the, that the Putin government has sort of tried for, for nearly 20 years to wean Russian agriculture uh, off these Western ties. And if I could just ask a sort of subsidiary question, you know, through your book, it's really clear how central bread is to the revolutionary sequence at the beginning of the 20th century, mm -hmm. the 
around bread, the promise of bread. And I was just wondering, based on uh, the last response, you know, how much then is Putin's agricultural policy oriented towards anxiety around unrest and unrest generated by uh, rising food prices. Is that an element of his policy? I mean, it seems like something like that is an element of food policy and governance and for countries around the world. But I was wondering if this is a live question in Russia. So I actually, I, I'm always threading carefully when I say anything about, you know, what Putin thinks and what Putin wants and what his motives are, especially when it comes to this war. But your your question was actually more generally about feeding people and bread and and so on. And so I think I, I think this the anxiety about um, uh, keeping affordable staples uh, in stores for everyone to afford, including uh, pensioners and state employees who are sort of on a budget, uh, and uh, is is really important for Russia's agricultural policy. I want to say it's it's uh, one of the cornerstones of Russian agricultural policies, and I, I focus on bread. Uh, because it has sort of the symbolic uh, weight. Uh, but I want to say the same is actually true for, you know, pork sausage and uh, a number of, you know, dairy, a number of other sort of basic staples. Honestly, a lot of the discussion uh, that we've been tracking most closely since the war began was the degree to which this would impact social stability or unrest in yeah. places like Egypt all the way to North America in terms of right. food prices. So just, I am interested in that connection between right. agricultural policy, technology, food prices and unrest. Yeah, so I actually, you know, you mentioning that, I, there's something like, I had forgotten one part of your question and 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 sort of I got, forgot that part of the question. So let me come back to that. You know, it's very much the case that Putin's policies were geared towards keeping uh, affordable staples in store. And that was very much uh, informed by the experience, uh, you know, of the late uh, Gorbachev years and the early Yeltsin years, where people didn't really have uh, enough to eat, and there was <clears throat> food insecurity, and there was, um, you know, in the in the 80s there were long lines for stores, and then in the earlys there were there were uh, you know people had to grow their own potatoes that actually pr- uh, uh, contributed to food security, and so. I do think that contributed uh, to sort of uh, must feed people because that's one basic ingredient for keeping people compliant is, is definitely part of Putin's calculus. If it's okay just to do one more diversion, just mm-hmm. speaking of this period in the 90s, I was wondering, is this like the dacha system in terms of people growing potatoes, you know, for themselves, you know, in the band outside the city? I was wondering if you talk a little bit more about of that element of food security? Uh, yes, it's called uh, subsistence production. So subsistence production, sort of people growing their own food was historically quite important for the Soviet Union uh, and Russia. And, you know, in many ways that's surprising because the Soviet Union tried really, really hard to industrialize all food production, right? So it had the same sort of uh, utopian vision of having modern farms. And the subsistence farms, uh, which uh, is basically people growing their own food uh, next to their house in the countryside or people growing food on sort of these ur- urban dacha plots, um, suburb- suburban dacha plots or urban dacha plots, really didn't fit that image. Uh, so Soviet governments, one after the other, was really hostile towards um 
what's called lichnaya patsovnaya chasyaistva, so subsistence production. And they did everything to undermine it. And there were, you know, tools weren't available. Seeds and inputs had to be sort of pilfered from the state sector. Lots and lots of labor had to be invested because there wasn't a lot of uh, tools available and so on. So, uh, but, you know, despite these very unfavorable conditions, this sector uh, played a pretty important role uh, in provisioning uh, Soviet citizens. So it varies for, for years, you know, not surprisingly, the sort of years of crisis and war years, uh, this was more important. So it was important in the Second World War, for example, it was important um, again in, in the 80s uh, and uh, 90s. Um, and, uh, and then it, it's always uh, interesting to look at different uh, products. So it was always more important for potatoes and less important for other uh, commodities, uh, but even for even for livestock and and dairy, a lot of Russian people and villages and even small towns had had a cow in the backyard and or or two goats or some chickens and so on. So this is actually a really important part of uh, Soviet agriculture. Um, and interestingly, um, you know, again, it played an important role in the '90s in feeding people, but it it has actually declined quite um, significantly. It has. Uh, in the Putin years, um, and 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 there's many explanations for that, but but one of the reasons is that people really lead uh, different lives. Uh, you know, people have more stressful jobs; they don't have less time to farm on the dacha. The older generation, uh, you know, isn't able to do it anymore. And then also, really important is that there just is affordable food in the stores, right? So if you can buy a carton of smetana or sour milk, maybe you're less inclined to have a cow to make your own sour milk and so on. But but it has still sort of, it's still only sort of one or two generations removed. So I think it's still uh, in some ways, you know, just sort of jokingly, it's still more part of the Russian DNA than it is um, um, elsewhere. But, but, you know, it's now, it's, it's going to be interesting. I've actually had, I've had questions about people where are the Russians gonna eat their own potato, make grow their own potatoes again? Are they gonna, you know, eat their own chickens? And and we don't know. Um, I, I do think uh, agriculture has changed quite a bit under Putin. And I do think Putin's gonna be able to feed people. They won't be able to drink Starbucks anymore, but they will be able to eat bread, I think. How does this all look like in other post-Soviet countries and other countries of the former Soviet Union? And, you know, it actually looks surprisingly different across these countries, right? So um, including uh, uh, Ukraine. So uh, post-Soviet countries share a history uh, with Russia in the sense of um, having to deal with the long-term consequences of uh, collectivization um, and then, you know, um, most countries, actually, not all of them, uh, privatized in the 90s, and almost all countries had the sort of output collapse and very precipitous crisis uh, in the 90s. Um, uh, however, the sort of recovery from the 90s looks actually really differently uh, from the Baltics to Belarus, to Russia, to Ukraine, uh, via the Caucasus and Central Asia. So every, every country has its own sort of interesting uh, history and trajectory over the last sort of 20-ish um, years. So, um, you know, 
so it's hard to summarize all of this, but let me just talk about Ukraine a little bit. Um, uh, Ukraine um, has uh, incredibly uh, fertile soil and very uh, uh, conducive climate. It has a long uh, growing season. Uh, it's quite warm and it has sort of plenty of rainfall. So it's it's really a, a wonderful climate for for agriculture. And it's you know it was the agricultural heartland uh, of the Russian Empire and of the Soviet Union. Uh, over the last twenty years, um, it also uh, saw the rise of uh, these agroholdings, these very large, vertically integrated agri-food corporations. Uh, some of them are funded from domestic oligarchs or Ukrainian oligarchs in this case, or Russian oligarchs in the Russian case. Uh, and some of them are, are funded through international uh, investments. Um, so both Russia and Ukraine saw the rise of these agri-holdings. Um, a difference, an important difference for Ukraine is, is what's called a moratorium on land sale. So Ukraine did privatize uh, agricultural land, uh, which meant that former collective workers obtained land shares uh, from the collective farms uh, where they worked. Uh, but since uh, the 90s, there is a moratorium on land sales. Uh, there was a moratorium on land sales uh, in place. So uh, the land owners uh, could lease their land, but they couldn't actually uh, sell it. So that, you know, many studies of Ukraine have sort of considered that a major uh, problem for the development of Ukrainian agriculture. Uh, in the sense of it, it's sort of those are sort of not quite full property rights, right? Like, why would an investor uh, in invest in in sort of expensive expensive facilities if they couldn't if they did if there's so much uncertainty about property rights? Uh, now, to, to some extent, that's that's warranted, but I think uh, in many ways there were a lot of loopholes uh, for this moratorium. So there were uh, uh, leases. Um, agricultural corporations could lease land from uh, landowners. And these leases actually were used quite uh, widely and uh, agri-holdings developed despite this moratorium. Uh, and actually Ukraine has seen a, a huge boom in agriculture over the last sort of 10, 15 years. So the moratorium uh, was ended and land was privatized last year in 2021. Uh, which did mark an important shift um, sort of politically. And I think in, in terms of the long-term development, this will uh, be important, but it wasn't sort of as radical a shift as, as a lot of people uh, made it out to be. Uh, but I do think in, in the long run, it will actually sort of further this, this trend of, of concentration of land ownership. So the agri-holdings will become more dominant and one of the things that is more of a feature of Ukrainian agriculture is there were actually still small farms. So the, the political background of the moratorium was actually sort of a, a protection of the small, small farms. A lot of people think of the moratorium as sort of a hangover of Soviet era mentality. And, you know, it was sort of, a, you know, this, the Soviet Union did not approve of private ownership of land and it, that was the origin of this moratorium. Uh, but, but a lot of, um, Ukraine is a more democratic country than Russia. And so it wasn't sort of politically feasible to end this moratorium because it seemed to protect small farmers. Uh, and so I do not actually know uh, a lot about the, the, sh the shift, why, why it was changed in 21. But my, my guess is, a, is that, you know, 
this was a push by the World Bank. This was a push by external donors to to finally lift this moratorium. Um, and 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 it wasn't exactly a, a victory of Ukrainian democracy. I think it was sort of Ukraine, uh, you know, bowing to a lot of these international pressures. That's extremely helpful. Thank you. And just to sort of go further in then to the present, I wanted to ask, you know, the Russian invasion began uh, right at the launch of the growing season uh, and whether you think it'll affect Russian crops and exports this year and how it'll affect Ukrainian agriculture this year and going forward. Uh, I imagine both in terms of 2022, but also in terms of sort of where the front lines are and whether that's going to be reshaping uh, Ukrainian agriculture in a fundamental way. Yeah, so so maybe I should mention that, you know, as I mentioned that Ukraine has had an agricultural uh, boom. Part of this boom was certainly uh, made possible by a lot of investments, uh, domestic and foreign. Uh, you know, you, China and the EU are uh, some of the biggest uh, importer of importers of Ukrainian corn. And both the EU and China had sort of these um, development projects and development finance to help Ukraine develop uh, uh, infrastructure, support infrastructure, storage facilities, and and so on. So so that's uh, the background, right? So Ukraine actually shifts from being a traditional wheat growing country to being uh, uh, to being one of the world's largest corn exporters. It produces a lot of corn, it has quite high yields. And then Russia invades in February of uh, this year, right? So, uh, what what is and you know this you know absolutely un, unspeakable horrible tragedy uh, is 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 happening before our eyes, and a lot of media coverage is is rightly so on sort of civilian suffering and the and the hospitals and the apartment buildings that are being disrupted. Um, meanwhile, of course, agriculture. Is also um, disrupted, right? And I think that the first uh, attention was about uh, port facilities, right? Uh, because there was actually, uh, you know, corn and wheat in in facilities that were corn and wheat are both storable. So, uh, you know, there was actually ships that were meant to leave Black Sea ports and they couldn't. Um, there was a, apparently a, a ship, a cargo ship, a crane that was bombed. Uh, you know, Russia has put actually a, a blockade, a sea blockade uh, on Ukraine. Uh, it, no, no Russian grain can currently leave, and that is already disrupting uh, global markets. Um, but we also need to actually think again about what kind of commodity uh, grain is, right? So grain needs to be uh, harvested, and it also needs to uh, grow in the soil, and it needs to be uh, fertilized and then it needs to be sown, right? Uh, and the seeds need to be put in the in the ground. So, so and all of these things happen at a particular time of the growing season. It's uh, um, anyone who gardens or or farms knows that uh, the last frost is quite important. Uh, so in Ukraine, the last frost tends to happen uh, similarly as in the American Midwest in the sort of in early April, right? So. Ukraine is just about to head into sowing season for corn, but it's actually also just about to head into harvest season for winter wheat. So Ukraine grows a lot of corn, but it still grows a lot of wheat. And it grows a lot of winter wheat, which is 
uh, sown uh, in October and harvested it sort of in March uh, and April. So for harvesting that winter wheat, um, the main problem is currently uh, fuel. Um, you know, to, to uh, harvest, you need combines and to run your combines, you need fuel. And currently there's a huge uh, fuel shortage in Ukraine because the military needs all fuel and because uh, Ukraine cannot really obtain a lot of fuel from elsewhere. Um, so a harvest is disrupted. And then as we go into the growing season, uh, planting is disrupted. Uh, uh, fertilizer is also a huge problem because often farmers actually fertilize before they put the seed in the ground. So fertilizing should happen just about now. Uh, fertilizers, as you may know, are, are currently in really, really short uh, supply uh, globally because Russia is one of the biggest fertilizer exports. Fertilizing is really uh, expensive right now. So I've heard from farmers in the Midwest who are actually sort of uh, cutting back on fertilizer to just to sort of see what happens uh, because uh, it's so expensive to buy fertilizer. Uh, later on, you know, this a similar problem uh, will, will be happening with regard to herbicides, uh, and then of course uh, harvesting again um, in the fall. So, and then which then you know gets us back to the sort of shipping and transport uh, problems. One of the uh, aspects, interesting aspects of Ukrainian agriculture is that much of the grain is transported via uh, rail, via rail carts. Uh, again, you know the Ukrainian rail uh, service is, is disrupted in the service of the war and trying to uh, get refugee out. So. The Ukrainian grain harvest is going to be majorly disrupted, sort of between, you know, if they can get half the grain uh, harvested, that would be uh, a good outcome, um, I think, or 30% loss or 50% loss. We don't really know exactly what the magnitude is, but, but there's going to be a major disruption. Um, and this will obviously have consequences for all the importers of Ukrainian grain. Uh, Russian disruptions are, are slightly different. It's a slightly different story. Yeah, so Russian agricultural production is, is affected differently than Ukrainian agricultural production for, for obvious region, reasons. Ukraine is under siege uh, and, and Russia has actually sort of worked hard uh, the last 20 years under Putin to sanction proof its economy. And so we do know about the sanction proofing uh, in terms of uh, its financial ties. So a lot of people know about the Sovereign Wealth Fund, uh, but Russia has actually done the same for, for its agriculture. So it isn't really uh, clear just how much Russian agriculture will be disrupted. My sense is based on also what I talked about earlier that really it's probably not going to be hugely disrupted because the Putin government has tried so hard to get Russian producers to rely on Russian input suppliers. Uh, so now this, this process of relying is called import substitution and, and uh, localization wasn't complete. Uh, Russian agriculture still uh, relies on Western technology and also relies on, on inputs from, from China and elsewhere. But, but those, are, those disruptions will be, will be less catastrophic. They, will, they might sort of affect Russian agriculture at the margin, I would say. And there's, of course, the financial sanctions in place, but as you know, Russia still exports a lot of energy. Um, Gazprom Bank, which is the bank that facilitates energy transaction, has was was ring fenced by the SWIFT sanctions. Um, so my guess is that Russia can still sort of 
find loopholes uh, or, or find ways to sell grain, right? And and uh, you know, in many ways, that wasn't affect. Uh, there wasn't the intention of sanctions to, is to is to affect Russian agriculture because Russian agricultural and Russian grain goes to many poor countries across the world. So, uh, you know, one of the first um, media outlet that contact me, contacted me right away on the 24th was Turkish TV, uh, because the Turkish TV was very aware uh, of this, this connection with, with grain and because Turkey imports a lot of grain uh, from Russia. Um, so, so talking about ripple effects, right? Uh, you know, combined ripple effects uh, of this crisis is really quite um, significant. And and again, we should think about agriculture as a as a production chain, as a technologically sophisticated uh, process, production process. And so, um, really, it's sort of uh, about fertilizer costs um, as much as it is about. Uh, final outputs, right? And and then you know, uh, Ukrainian corn, for example, is exported to China, uh, where it is used primarily as livestock feed, right? So um, there's going to be less meat for uh, many consumers in Asia. There's going to be less fertilizer for agricultural producers around the world. There's going currently. Uh, Russia has a ban on fertilizer, and it has high export tariffs uh, on grain. So Russia try, is trying to keep grain within Russia. So that makes grain more expensive for all of Russia's international grain partners. Um, so there's there's been a lot of concern about food security as this year progresses. It's very useful just to hear, for example, that you know people in Turkey are thinking about you know, their status as importers from of Russian grain. Could you just talk a little bit more about the character of the importers and sort of partners in this level of trade around agricultural products? You know, whether it's a matter of uh, grain or also inputs like fertilizer that are now banned from being exported? Yeah, so one of the interesting things is that uh, Russia has been promoting self-sufficiency for for in, in food and agriculture for some time, but it is actually also very much a global actor, right? So, so it's actually globalized in, in terms of uh, its uh, grain export. And so there's actually a, a sort of a, a, a quite a variety of countries that import uh, Russian grain and Ukrainian grain um, as well. So uh, on the one hand, there's the, the mo- foremost concern right now is, is about the large populace uh, kind of poor, the populous poor countries in in Asia and, and Africa. So, for example, uh, Nigeria uh, and Bangladesh um, that rely on Eurasian uh, grain. And so uh, uh, Egypt is another one. And so in these countries, just a, a, an increase in, in grain prices uh, can be quite uh, have a huge effect on people's household budgets, right, and the ability to buy bread. And then a lot of these countries, uh, the governments actually also subsidize bread. So if bread becomes more expensive, that will uh, make it more expensive for these governments, and who can then afford not afford other things, right? So there's this sort of, you know, political dimension uh, as well. And and a lot of people have. Uh, pointed to 2010 when a drought uh, in Eurasia reduced Russia's grain harvest 
which then uh, led the government to abandon uh, subsidies, which uh, many people think uh, led to the uh, uprising on, on Tahir Square, which, which then ended up in the ouster of, of Hosni Mubarak. So that was 2010 and the 2011 uh, Tahir Square. So obviously these kinds of uh, uh, political uh, events are not predictable, right? It, it's gonna play itself out in different countries differently. Um, but that's the concern for the large um, poor countries. Um, but then there's also, for example, countries in Central Asia that rely quite heavily uh, on Russian agricultural inputs. So for example, Central Asia has currently a sugar shortage um, and that is currently not yet because of uh, disruptions on Russian farms, but it's because Russia actually also um, has banned sugar exports uh, in an attempt to keep sugar beets and, and sugar uh, in Russia. Kazakhstan, as you may know, had a sort of political, an episode of political unrest uh, earlier this year that was triggered by inflation and energy prices going up. So sort of, you know, food and sugar prices going up could be equally destabilizing, but we, we really don't know Kazakhstan, you know, uh, the, the sort of the regimes and polities in all these countries look, look differently. You know, I mentioned China and sort of what it means for livestock uh, in China, right? Chi the, China, the Chinese version of the good life has increasingly meant that China's middle class wants to consume meat. Uh, what will happen if there's less meat available? Uh, we don't know. Um, so there's a concern about food security. One, one question that I have, uh, and I think, uh, you know, I, I would like everyone to pay attention to this, is that if, if this actually might um, foster subsistence production in other parts of the world, right? So, you know, in the same way as subsistence production and, and is tied to the availability of industrial production in Russia, it, you know, it is also the case in, in other countries sort of, imported food um, often displaces subsistence production in, in countries in Latin America and Africa and Asia. So, you know, in a best case scenario, we'll see more subsistence production, um, but who knows? A lot of things are un uncertain in, 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 this, in this story. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense in just thinking about those ripples and how people will respond and we will be able to increase subsistence production as an alternative to famine. That seems like a best case scenario. Just in terms of then thinking kind of techno-politically, not just about uh, these distant parts of the world that will be affected. I was wondering if I could just ask about the kind of rural zones of Russia and the Ukraine, uh, because I know Ukraine, you know, the focus has been on cities as theaters of war. And yet at the same time, there have been these kind of iconic images of farmers using tractors to haul burnt out tanks or captured tanks and things like this. And I was just wondering if you have any sense of kind of how things look on the ground, either on the Russian or Ukrainian side in the rural zones and how life is already being transformed uh, by the reality of war, by, uh, you mentioned how the passage of refugees is displacing other forms of rail traffic and access. So I was just wondering if I could ask sort of very locally to this conflict, uh, whether there's uh, Technopolitical shifts happening on the ground. Yeah, that's a great question, and you know, I want to say uh, many things about these. This war um, uh, will we will only learn later. So I, you know, I'm based in the U.S. in Chicago, 
And we don't really have all that much information about what is happening in Russia and Ukraine. And the information environment is quite controlled by, you know, uh, local actors, right? In the Russian case, it's the, you know, Russian propaganda uh, machine. And in the Ukrainian case, it's sort of uh, other civil society actors who, you know, convey particular uh, messages. So, so honestly, I don't know at this point. So, you know, some things I do know, right? We, there's actually colleagues of mine who are keeping track uh, of uh, violent events and where they happen. So we do actually know uh, which regions of Ukraine are particularly affected. And, you know, one of the things I'm actually working on right now is to see if those are agricultural uh, regions and I don't I'm not done yet with that analysis so I wish I already have that um, that answer for you but but you know strangely or you know surprisingly but also I don't know what the right adjective is you know Putin's attack on Ukraine has been very sort of comprehensive and has actually targeted many areas um, and uh, uh, Luhansk and Donetsk uh, in the east those are tend to be more uh, industrial regions and uh, Ukraine's agricultural heartland is in the center and in the west. Um, but that doesn't mean that agriculture is not affected because ag Ukraine as a whole is quite a rural country. Um, so, you know, I, I we have some sort of aggregate idea that, you know, this war is affecting agriculture in, in multiple ways via disruptions in the field and, and on the ports. But I don't actually know what is going on in the countryside. That's a really good question. We should sort of, uh, you know, seek more, seek more information on that as the as the war uh, unfolds. The, you know, in terms of what we do know and what we don't know, I think, uh, you know, these kinds of crises uh, are helping us uh, shed lights on things that have uh, happened in the past and that we should now uh, emphasize. So. Some of the things uh, that you know this this crisis just have uh, have highlighted is that you know agriculture matters, right? And Eurasian grain is really important uh, for the world, right? Uh, so you know, in in many ways, that's what led me to write this book over the last uh, ten years. And I wish there uh, didn't need to be a war to drive home this point, but it you know is one of the is one of the things that we. Um, uh, pay attention to now that Ukraine is an agricultural country and and Russia produces a lot of grain, um, you know. And but it also you know these kind of crises actually also raise raise many more questions than we can answer. And so you know we don't actually know how important Ukraine's agricultural riches are for what Russia is doing. And that is in in many ways a question on on my mind, that it was certainly the case for Soviet governments that have these imperial projects for Ukraine, that uh, the fertile soil in Ukraine and the long growing seasons were incredibly important, right? What Stalin did in Ukraine uh, was very much about grain and land and farming. Uh, and, you know, we, we know Putin's rhetoric is all about uniting Russian supposedly ethnic Russians, uh, liberating ethnic Russians. But the sort of desire to control Ukraine, I think, is broader and has to do 
with the industrial base in Luhansk and Donetsk, but it also has to do with agriculture, I assume, and it also has to do with Ukrainian orthodoxy and cultural striving for for independence from Russia. So it's, it's sort of a mix of things and agriculture is in there, I am guessing. That's fantastic and quite helpful. Thank you so much for being willing to speak with us. I think this will be quite helpful for our listeners. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you. Great questions. You know, I hope it'll shed light. I really do think it will. And I just appreciated, you know, the balance being struck. I mean, just thinking really deeply and historically about these issues, but then also pulling out, you know, those, there were moments where you just went to just how horrible this war is. And I, I just thought that was well struck. So thank you. Awesome. Well, thanks for your time. And let's hope for brighter futures. This has been Partisan Gardens. On this program, we are going to look at the world through the lens of food. We will speak directly to those with their hands in the dirt. But also to those in all sectors of the food world. To the servers and those being served. To the history of food in this country and beyond. We will focus on understanding the systemic problems in our food industry, including food scarcity and racism. We want to talk to you too. Please write us at partisangardens at wfhb.org and we will be in touch.